Welcome to St John's Derm Academy podcast. This is an educational podcast designed for healthcare professionals in dermatology. It's our aim that these podcasts provide you with an easy way to stay up to date and build your knowledge. The information in this podcast is based on the latest evidence and expert opinion at the time of recording. It's aimed at healthcare professionals, so any patient listening should see their own physician for specific advice on any medical issues that they may have. In our last episode, we were very lucky to have Dr. Rachel Morris-Jones discussing the cutaneous features of coronavirus. And today I have Dr. Felicity Ferguson speaking to us about occupational dermatoses during this pandemic. Felicity is a consultant dermatologist here at St. John's. Her area of specialist interest is cutaneous allergy. She was redeployed to the front line to help care for patients with the virus and she's been playing a key role in keeping the skin of all our healthcare workers healthy by offering guidance and setting up both remote and face-to-face drop-in clinics for staff who've been suffering with the ill effects of enhanced hand washing and PPE over the past few months. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So uh, for this episode, we'll first be talking about the types of the skin problems that we've been seeing in healthcare workers. We'll then discuss the strategies that can be put into place to help prevent occupational dermatoses, and we'll be touching on the treatment of some of these. The evidence suggests that coronavirus can be transmitted through contaminated hands. Therefore, frequent hand washing with soap and water or hand rubbing with alcohol-based hand rub is required. Unfortunately, soap substitutes are not adequate to decontaminate our hands. As a result, we've observed an increase in irritant hand eczema. Wearing goggles and face masks has also created facial irritation and sometimes ulceration. Both have caused a huge negative impact on quality of life and also the ability of healthcare workers to be able to carry out their work. In one study from the Hubei province in China, the prevalence of skin damage related to enhanced protection measures was reported to be as high as 97%, and 74% of their healthcare workers had damage specifically to their hands. This is undoubtedly a significant issue. Are you able to tell us about some of the measures put in place here at this hospital to help frontline workers? With the onset of the outbreak, it became clear very quickly the wave of problems we were going to have seeing high rates of occupational dermatitis as you've already alluded to. So we ended up developing sort of a multi-pronged strategy to help with this. So first of all we created written basic information that my colleague Dr White led on which became available on the trust intranet um, in the COVID-19 support page designed specifically for that purpose. Then we developed self-referral telephone clinics So staff members could book through the internet onto a slot of their choosing on any of three days to have a telephone call back with arrangements for them to send photographs beforehand so we could review the actual clinical problem at hand at the time of the consultation. And then subsequent to this, we realised that, you know, these staff have occupational health problems as a result of the way that they're having to work now. So we approached the trust executive, um, Dr White again led on this, and agreement was obtained that we would be able to prescribe treatments for our staff without them needing to pay a prescription charge for our hospital pharmacies, which has been a fabulous help to everybody. And then lastly, um, what we've done is, um, when I was redeployed, again, it became clear that staff were having such high levels of problems that the telephone clinic alone wasn't going to be able to address this. So we arranged outreach clinics, which I was supported through with my fellow redeployed consultants, where we went to the intensive care units, both at St Thomas's and at Guy's, and staff could then pop in on their shift um, on once a week basis to get any help that they needed. 
great that you've been able to put this into place so quickly and I know lots of staff that have been able to benefit from these clinics and who've given excellent feedback on them. Are you able to tell us about the most common skin problems you've been seeing in your telephone and face-to-face clinics that you've been doing? By far and away, the two leading groups are the hand dermatitis and the facial dermatitis. So it makes sense, of course, we're washing our hands so much more frequently. Um, hand dermatitis, you've seen a huge spike in that, both as a new presentation, but also as a flare in somebody who knows, you know, at winter or at certain times of the year, they may get a worsening of their skin condition. And with the facial dermatitis, it's far and away pressure mechanical, irritant contact dermatitis, from the way that these FFP3 masks fit. Um, Alongside this though, we are definitely seeing a potpourri of flares of atopic dermatitis, flares of seborrheic dermatitis, flares of underlying psoriasis to the hands or to the face. Um, We've seen a a lot of occlusive acne um, from where the mask fits in a tight fitting across the chin and cheeks. And in the last few weeks, we've seen an uptick in the number of staff affected with facial dermatitis after they've been advised to swap from reusable, sorry, disposable FFP3 masks to use the reusable masks. And what's come to light with these staff members is that it is secondary to the cleansing practices that the Trust have recommended. So staff have been told to clean their masks with Clonel Universal Wipes, allow this to dry, um, and then reapply the mask when they need to after their break periods. Uh, the issue we have is when you go and look at the material safety data sheet for the Canal wipes, they contain many different disinfectants and antiseptics, including benzylconium chloride and other similar substances. We know from research that has already been published that benzylconium chloride is not volatile, so it stays as a residue on the face mask. Um, We also know frequently from our dermatology practice it can also lead to irritant contact dermatitis if used frequently or in high concentrations. Putting these masks on in these hot ICU environments for several hours at a time with a dried residue, allowing that to increase in concentration throughout your shift. Uh, We think that's led to this outbreak of uh, worsening irritant contact dermatitis. And it's very clearly all around where the mask would fit to the skin. We have, of course, considered whether or not this could be an allergic contact dermatitis, and we have taken several staff members forward for patch testing. There is literature to show um, there's a publication reporting isocyanate contact allergy to one kind of uh, FFP mask, and another one uh, demonstrating rubber allergic contact dermatitis from the straps in an FFP2 mask. However, we haven't identified any relevant contact allergens in these staff, and we do therefore conclude it's all irritant contact dermatitis from the way that these canal wipes are being used. Uh, We have uh, run past our strategy with the uh, Trust's lead, um, consultant lead in infection prevention and control, um, and he's okayed the fact that we're now recommending staff to wash and rinse these masks with tap water after cleansing with the canal wipes to then wash off this residue, and then the mask can be dried and reapplied. And the feedback we've now had on a preliminary basis from those staff members who are worst affected are that it's all settled down. I would also uh, like to clarify, though, that we do have a handful of uh, staff members that still have persistent problems with the way that these um, FFP3 masks fit, uh, both with the disposable and the reusable makes uh, that fit across the nasal bridge and around the cheeks, uh, regardless of what we can try and do to support that. Uh, But there are alternatives available in small numbers uh, where we can get uh, the Max Air helmet fitted for staff members, uh, which doesn't require fit testing and is fully protected and doesn't have contact sites across the facial skin. Thank you. So what additional measures do you think we can put in place or what modifications can we uh, make to try and avoid some of the complications that we're seeing from these FFP3 masks? 
There is general advice out there published by NHS England where they do clearly state that they recommend breaks of every two hours when staff are wearing these fit-tested FFP3 masks. I think the difficulty we're seeing from the clinic is it's just not always practicable and the majority of staff will report they may have a break after two hours but it may be as long as three, four, five hours afterwards. However, we do, particularly of staff having problems, really emphasise the importance of this because that allows blood circulation back to the site and sort of prevents uh, a lot of the problems that we see. Um, outside of that, uh, we can uh, recommend certain dressings that can be used and we work with tissue viability here at the Trust to be able to come up with options for the, our staff team. Uh, so we first line suggest the use of Sil Tape, which is a silicon-based pink tape uh, that was made available on all ward stock lists so the ward sister can order this for the staff team. It's best used uh, before you have skin breakdown as a pressure reliever. So because it's silicone-based, it will spread the pressure across the nasal bridge. We do recommend, however, that staff check the fit of the mask after applying the tape to make sure that they still have a really good seal. And then because some of the tape will be outside of the mask, they need to remove the tape at each doffing. So every time they go for the break, they need to remove that tape and then reapply when they come back on shift. Um, which again, can again lead to its own problems because there can be skin trauma from adhesive remover. Um, and to try and combat that, adhesive remover should be available on the intensive care units as well. If we need to step up from that, next line is Bepilex Border Light, which is a four by five centimetre size dressing. Again, staff can pop that over the nasal bridge. It provides cushioning. Again, it's silicon based and should provide pressure distribution. And similarly, in the same way as with the sill tape, it needs to be changed at each break. Beyond that, um, Duoderm Extra Thin has been beneficial to some members of staff. It's hydrocolloid, so it's not quite as pressure distribution, um, doesn't offer quite so much pressure distribution, but uh, it can be helpful for some. Thank you. So we've discussed some of the modifications to infection control practices that have helped reduce some of the damage that we're seeing from masks. Have there been any practices that have been put into place that have helped reduce the amount of hand dermatitis that we're seeing? Interestingly, although it was hand dermatitis that initially led us to develop such a robust response to all the problems we were seeing, that has settled somewhat. We're seeing a lower instance of staff presenting with this issue, and we think this is linked to a change in the infection control practices um, employed on the wards and in intensive care. Initially, staff members were recommended to deglove after every patient, alcohol gel or hand wash, and then reapply gloves for the next patient. Subsequently, they've now said in a bay of patients, you may alcohol gel over the same pair of gloves and continue to work, um, as long as, of course, you practice appropriate hand hygiene with the hand cleansing technique. And this reduction in uh, use of alcohol gel to the skin of the hands, I think, has meant that staff are suffering less. Although overwhelmingly the problems we're seeing with hand dermatitis has been irritant in nature, we have considered allergic contact dermatitis based perhaps on the severity of the skin condition, the distribution, or whether or not staff have experienced secondary spread. And we have undertaken patch testing in a number of our staff members. And while some of that has been negative, we have been picking up positive results. So I think it should be borne in mind that allergic contact dermatitis is still prevalent in our workforce and patch testing should be considered where appropriate. Um, so, for example, we've had um, a staff member that uh, came up positive to several fragrance substances, and although she wasn't immediately exposed to those in her work environment, that would be exacerbating the problem uh, from exposures in the home. 
we've had a staff member um, patch test positive to formaldehyde and we use formaldehyde preservatives in the hand sanitizer. So the Q-Tan hand soap in use in our trust does contain some formaldehyde releasing preservatives. So it was important to highlight that so she can then use an alternative hand cleanser when she's on shift. Okay, and practically how have you been carrying out this patch testing? I know for our patients it's been a challenge and lots of patch testing has come to a halt. Um, how have you been doing it for our healthcare workers? So Guy's and Tommy's is across two sites and our patch unit is based at Guy's. Um, a large number of our staff members are based at St Thomas's. So for some we've been able to do it the conventional way, which is of course the ideal, where they attend for that uh, first visit, have the patch supplied and return two days and four to five days later for their first and second readings. Uh, but we've been adapting a little bit um, because of the COVID pandemic. Um, and as a result, we've been sort of converting to sort of virtual appointments for their first reading or perhaps both their first and second. Um, and that has meant that we've been getting sort of high quality images from patient smartphones through that we've then been able to evaluate and feedback the results over the phone to the staff member. And that, you know, it's early days, but it's working reasonably well. So I think it's a good option uh, when it's not possible to do things, you know, the way we used to. Fantastic. That's a, that's a very uh, innovative way of doing things. Finally, I understand that you've been collecting data not only on the types of problems you've been encountering, but also the groups of healthcare workers that have been affected. Are you able to share some of your preliminary findings on which healthcare workers have been worst affected? We recognised early on it was quite important to collect this data because the scale of the problem, you know, it's unprecedented. And I think there could well be lessons learned from the data that we collect and how we deal with this kind of outbreak in the future. And I think we're perhaps all facing the reality that we're in for a long ride here. So we need to be able to put strategies in place so we can protect our staff um, from this kind of problem. So we're still working it out fully. Um, of course, we haven't yet reached the end of this, so we're adding data all of the time. Uh, but just from sort of mid-April to early May, uh, we saw over 100 patients in both the telephone clinics and the outreach clinics. Overwhelmingly, they were female, 87%. And I think that makes complete sense when you see the breakdown of the occupations seeking help. Um, nearly three quarters of staff coming to see us were nurses. And most of our, sorry, and most of our staff group in intensive cares are, you know, our nurse, our female, which I think is unsurprising again because they are right at the front line wearing their face masks for several hours at a time before their breaks um, on their long 13-hour shifts. Um, but again, we've been seeing a high number of physios, um, particularly respiratory physios working on intensive care. Um, they've been, again, involved in wearing PPE for prolonged periods of time in hot, humid environments. Uh, alongside that, we saw a good spattering through the allied health professionals, predominantly physios, working on the respiratory care of those severely affected patients in intensive care. But of course, we saw junior doctors, consultants, we saw porters and even admin assistants. They were adopting uh, the rigorous hand washing techniques that we need to use these days and were suffering as a result. It was interesting to see that uh, these problems were spread across both redeployed staff and those who were in role um, who, who are usually an intensive care nurse and I think that just shows the level um, the intensity of hand washing required in the context of COVID-19 and again of course this new um, issue with the facial mask uh, dermatitis. Thank you very much for discussing these issues with us today it's been very informative hearing about your experiences. I want to thank you for having me I think it's been lovely to be able to share our experience of what we've been doing here so far. It very much feels like we're learning on the job, having to change practice really rapidly to adapt to this really rapidly evolving situation. And I think we all know, and I certainly know colleagues all across the country that are seeing similar problems. And I think 
it would be lovely to all be able to learn from each other so that we can come up with a really cohesive, coherent strategy for how to manage this moving forward. Absolutely. So for anyone listening to this episode, we'd love to hear about the strategies you've been putting into place in your own hospitals to manage the problems we've been discussing. You can do this through our website, www.stjohnsdermacademy.com on our podcast page, where you'll find a comments and feedback form at the bottom. We hope it's been helpful to listen to some of the occupational skin problems that we've been encountering during this pandemic and some of the measures that we've been taking to try and counteract them. You can find a summary of today's podcast episode with summaries of these strategies, references and further information on our website. Thank you very much to our listeners. Please look out for our next episode where we'll be taking a look at the implications of coronavirus on our patients taking immune modulating therapies. We'd finally like to thank our sponsors of Derm Academy, Abvi, Celgene, Lilly, Janssen, Novartis, Sanofi and UCB. They don't have any influence on the material in this podcast, but their support's invaluable to us. Thank you very much.